This podcast is brought to you by the new term at fxphd.com. Among the new courses this term, our new Katana Lighting Training, a world first with Matt Leonard. Included in that is free VPN access to a full version of Katana, along with many other key programs to help you learn, such as Arnold, Maya, Nuke, Cinema 4D, and many more. They're all there to help you take your career to the next level. Check it all out at fxphd.com. You're listening to The RC, your guide to digital cinema, filmmaking, and cutting-edge imaging. Hi, and welcome to this week's RC podcast covering digital cinematography. This week, we're going to be covering all manner of things, plug on bits from Red. Jason's found some really interesting gyro stuff and a product I believe I first saw at NAB about three or four years ago. You want to find out what that is? Hang around here at the RC where we see our role as mining the news, filtering the blogs and doing those serious, serious rat holes. This is all the camera tech we're discussing, obsessing about, arguing about generally bitching about and uh joining me via the skype is my good Hello. friend mr jason wingrove just back from Hello. the other side of australia yeah australia australia yes yes back in time it's actually quite a long way to go to perth bloody is big country yep set the watches back 20 years i, I know we can't say. discuss your project but i'm allowed to ask you what you're shooting on uh my epic uh-huh great yes which was which was good it's always it's always good to, because I mostly, I often shoot with it, you know, kind of just by myself. So it's often interesting to drag it into a, a bigger crew setup and with, you know, the full-on thing and assistants and loaders and DITs and things and watch them all go, hmm, why don't we have this? Where's this bit? And, oh, this stupid red thing. How do we get the audio to work? What the fuck, red? How hard is it just to have like you know proper audio in? And I think stuff you're like actually that? twittering about audio problems. Oh, I was I was having a bit of whinges every time you sort of you know every time I can I I can set it up to make myself happy, but uh, you know every time you sort of put it in the hands of other highly experienced professionals, you're always kind of you know always keen to just 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 observe from a distance and see what you know how I can change it for next time. Excellent. Like, or how Red should have done it in the first place, but anyway. Well, now, coming up in the Red Room uh, this week, we have uh, some... Uh, it's not really Oscar coverage. We, what we've done is we've um, contacted and uh, managed to do interviews with uh, the DOPs that have featured incredibly uh, successfully at this year's Oscars to talk about their work, not about the um, the Oscars. We're not so interested in about the... Um, I guess the awards ceremony, as we are about their work. Uh, we're going to actually kick off this week with speaking to... Uh, Daniel Katz. Now, Daniel was the DOP on the Oscar-winning short film, live-action uh, Curfew, which is absolutely terrific. Um, I've got to say, I watched the first 30 seconds, and I thought, I'm not going to like this. <laughs> I was wrong. I liked it a lot. Anyway, I'm going to talk to uh, Daniel uh, coming up later in the podcast. And then uh, in a week or two, we're going to be talking to Claudia Miranda, who uh, also joined us and uh, had a really good chat. We, we are, in that case, um, focusing less on Life of Pi, which he's been obviously in the press about a lot, and more about his new film coming out with uh, Tom Cruise. So we're going to delay that until it syncs up with the uh, film coming out. But I've got to say, both of those interviews you don't want to miss. They're really, really uh, a lot of fun. And I've got to say, both guys um, very, very generous. Is that film delayed? That Tom, what's the Tom Cruise thing again? I've seen Oblivion. about five different trailers, and is it is it like one of those sort of stuck in post production no, things? No, no, it's just it's just Digital a long slow teasing post, campaign. Yeah, they're building up. Than, uh, okay, they're building up, and it's it's actually good because I know more than I'm allowed to talk about. So all I can say is they haven't given it all away in the trailer. 
That's what I'm going to say. And that's, I'm not giving anything away when I say that either because they've said that themselves. They want Good. to not have one of those films where, you know, all the best bits are in the trailer and you've seen it all. Yeah. So um, I, I'm actually really looking forward to this film. Oh, it looks astounding. And all shot on the F-65 and the director of Tron t- 2 or whatever you want to call it. Tron Neutron. Legacy? Yeah. Tron Legacy, thanks. Yeah, and I've got to say... Um, so I actually quite like that film. Really yeah, well, you're going to like this one a lot. But hey, I've got to say the... the um, the stuff that's coming up with uh, Curfew is really um, interesting because um, I got to speak to Jerome as well, who, and I'll get onto this when we get into the Red Room, but um, they were shooting on the uh, Red, but they actually ran out to film and then retransferred the film. So, so they shot on Red, did it all, went yeah. out to film to Neg, rescanned the Neg back in digitally, then went back out again. Does that make sense? To get yes. a film look? Well, we'll it hear makes, about it all. I, the process makes sense as a description. Uh, I'd love to hear the explanation of how it might make sense visually. Ooh, and anamorphic lenses. Mm. Yep, All of that coming up understand. later in the show. But let's Excellent. kick off, uh, as we like to do, with news. And, Jace, um, I think we should start with a party because, you know, we like parties. Yeah. Well, I'm still trying to find out if we need to register to this one because this is actually – this is the NAB, uh, Red's NAB party, which is on April 7th, which I think is the Sunday night before everything kicks off. Last yes, time, last time, if you remember the last uh, red party, which was like the light iron kind of thing, um, that was a really massive do, a really massive gathering, and really spread out. This is pretty much all those people gathering together in a nightclub at the Hard Rock. So I, I'm really hoping there might be some sort of RSVPing system. Otherwise, there's going to be a lot of queues. There's going to be a lot queue. of. Uh, it's going to be it's going to be quite big. Um, what uh, Red have at least hinted at this time is they're not going to start this year. We're not going to talk about what's going to be. They're going to be talking about what is and what you know. What, what's I guess I guess they'll announce something hard and fast and something you can actually physically buy. Actually, Jason, I think they absolutely will not. I love my <laughs> friends at Red, but I actually think they're completely not going to do anything at the night of this party because I was conned last year and turning up to the party thinking that they were going to give a rundown of what was going to be showing on the show floor the next Monday morning. And all they said yeah. is, here's a bunch of stuff Aren't that, great? that uh, we're going to run through, which is of kind of interest, but we're going to tell you nothing new. You have to come to the show floor tomorrow morning at, at you know, Monday, whatever it was, at uh, whenever the show opened at 8.30, whatever it was. Um, so I think if you go to the party, you'll have a good party. I expect you'll learn nothing about what's yes. going to be on the booth. Um, so, yeah, I would say, though, on the booth, we're going to see almost un- undoubtedly um, some sensor action. And, yeah. Uh, so that'll be Hot worth doing. So I, I'm not discouraging people from getting enthusiastic i'm just saying don't peak too soon don't as you say i don't know if you say this but i wouldn't you know blow my wad on on sunday night i'd, I'd hold back I'd, I'd uh i'd restrain myself so i had some enthusiasms left for um monday morning yeah it'd just be a good get together and um nice Nothing wrong with a and an open bar Yes. So, now, excellent. if you really want to get excited, you will listen uh, via the internet or turn up at the Foundry booth on Tuesday where we're going to be doing um, the RC Live. So on the Tuesday of NAB, that's uh, Vegas time, of course, we're going to be 10 till 4 uh, live from the booth. Now, we did this last year, and uh, as in 
FX Guide is 10 to 4, and then in the middle of that somewhere is a live RC um, presentation. And the advantage of doing that is Jason and I get to actually manhandle cameras and bits and bobs, uh, and you get to see them all. It will be immediately looped on a rebroadcast for those of you that are in uh, other parts of the world and would be otherwise asleep. And then a day or so after that, we take it down and sort of cut it up into semi-segments. It's not edited, but it's still kind of like a bit more accessible. And... Um, and that'll probably happen like sometime in the following week. So if you yeah, can... Yeah, it was good last year. It was great. Yeah. I mean, it was actually good to be to spend the Monday wandering the halls and just kind of just picking up not just the obvious uh, big ticket items, but just weird sort of uh, the unusual uh, stuff from or off the floor that sort of hasn't necessarily been picked up by other people. Well, Jason, you found some very good stuff last year, including that camera in a ball, which I, I don't know <laughs> how you found I'm keen to that. see the camera in the ball, guard bot or whatever it was. I'm keen to see if they if it turns up uh, yes. this year that, in a much better, more high-definition, you know, much more evolved guys, perhaps. Something just like that was in the... Um Oblivion trailer, actually, wasn't it? Uh-huh. Right. Yeah, that's yeah. Right. yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Coincidence? I don't think so. So, um, um, yeah, it was good fun. And uh, the kind of thing I would have loved to have seen when I didn't, on the years that I didn't go. Now, I can tell you not what it is, but that already we've had two major equipment manufacturers approach us, knowing that we're going to do this, uh, giving us the heads up on major new stuff at NAB. And we've uh, organized to, how can I put this without giving it away? Uh, we will be prepared for the Tuesday with these two um, things, which are both very, very interesting and uh, high-end and certainly not, you know, um, uh, weird and wonderful things. But we're going to do this in cooperation. I don't know what those are. You'll have to tell me after that. I haven't. Yeah, no, they're really good. I well, I think just... you guessed one of them, but okay. the other one you haven't guessed because um, cool. I only found it out by being hinted at this morning uh, from a place. Like, if only I told you where it was, you'd, you'd give it away. But okay. it's worth it. You are gonna. You are Good. so going to. I, I put it this way: when I, yeah, I can't even say that. I can't even say that. Okay, what I can say is I, I changed what I was taking to Vegas when I found out. Hmm. Um. But hey. Uh, okay. Yeah, you're really gonna like this. This is awesome. Um. We can have all that for you. The only reason when, when you know we can't do it before then is it doesn't get announced before then. But we'll um. Yeah, we don't want to uh, break any NDAs. But yeah, we've getting all this stuff sorted. And the great thing about doing that is that uh, we can make sure we get uh, the proper access to the right people and you guys can uh, benefit from finding out what it is. I think the other thing about it is in the same spirit that we've always had with the show, which is we don't want to just get a press release and say, well, here at NAB, they've announced that they have, and I'm making this up now, a new um, turbo train thingy crane what's a and then say, well, I've never used it, never seen one, but apparently it's good according to this press release. By doing this stuff in advance, we get a chance to ask some questions. Um, and in fact, we are looping back with the engineering departments and stuff like that so that we can get a bit more under the hood. So by the time we uh, announce on the Tuesday, whatever it is that we're talking about, um, you know, it's more than just uh, regurgitating stuff you'd otherwise find elsewhere on the net. So that's what's going on. I think also maybe we've got time for another airport too before NAB for sure. I'd love to go back to our sort of picks of the show last year and actually kind of do a like, where are they now? Where are they now? Exactly. Where is this thing we thought was super cool? Where's this uh, camera that was meant to be launched by now? Where's this app that we thought would change the universe? Yeah. We need like a... 
It'll probably be depressing, actually, because it'll be sort of set much lower expectations for this year when when we sort of realise that 50% of the stuff that uh, actually people launch is uh, vaporware or just PR bullshit. I think we should call it. I think we should do exactly that, and I will set a team of highly trained engineering researchers onto the problem. Good. Hey, um, so something else that's uh, in in the news zone is a new adapter module for the REDs. Yeah, well, this is this is kind of frustrating because this was a module I was really looking forward uh, to getting for my Epic is the Plus One adapter module, which is its main job is to give you something which, I mean, it's arguable with the, the whole Epic thing is that what should have been with the camera to begin with. And uh, you can argue that till the cows come home about a camera that's really small, should it have had all this stuff on it and then it would have been a much bigger camera um, or more expensive. But uh, one thing I've always wanted to do is be able to run uh, an EVF and a touchscreen at the same time. Uh, this is and and actually have this is something that definitely should have been in the camera from the beginning is to have some uh, power out, some DC out to run accessories. Uh, I didn't really want to have a big massive the big massive Pro IO adapter on the camera, or or the, certainly not the expense of and the. Um, overcomplication of the Meisler module, but I definitely wanted the ability to plug in some extra stuff, ideally some XLRs, any of this sort of stuff, but plus one was something I was hanging on for, and this is out now out, I don't think it's been out, sold out, I think you can still buy one and get one within a week or so, $1,250, doing a pretty simple job, just giving you external EVF and DC, uh, but the real gotcha for me is that uh, I'm I'm now really used to using the HDMI port for my Paralinks for transmitting mm-hmm. uh, video around, and I just used it day before yesterday. I use it often, and I wouldn't be without it. But the Plus One adapter module, I guess, somewhat in some way regurgitates the signal coming out of the HDMI and uses that. So there's actually a plug on the bottom of the module which uh, uses up the HDMI socket. So if you want there's a real gotcha. If you want, an, if you want to add uh, a touchscreen and a bomb, uh, you lose the HDMI port. Now, uh, obviously, you can still use the SDI if you want to. Can but, you not uh, plug that in though, or is it? Well, it's really in? kind of sticking right out of the bottom of the thing. I imagine if you don't, it's not like you can kind of like pull it in and out because it's actually like right there on the bottom of the module. You actually have to take the module off really to be able to clear that port. And it's so molded into the bottom of the module that it's not really like you could actually get a um, like an HDMI splitter or anything onto it because I just, I mean, who knows how it will react if you actually split that signal. It's taking, Lord knows what it's even doing to the HDMI signal to then regurgitate it and put it into another bomb or put it into a touchscreen. So who knows whether it would react to a splitter or not. You certainly can't really physically remove it without having to take the module on and off. So, I mean, for some people this would be great, but for me that's a bit of a deal killer. I can't, and it looks like I'm going to have to uh get the pro io module which is a much bigger almost more than twice as expensive module but i guess given the pain i had a little bit of pain i had with audio maybe the pro io isn't such a bad idea um because it's got two full size xlrs and an xlr audio out it just doesn't bother me it really doesn't bother me plugging into the i mean we do that all the time yeah it, it does smack of the original Red One um, Micro Baby Juvenile XLR cable. Yes, thing. they were a little bit silly. 
but um, yeah, no, it's uh, it's doesn't bother me. Mm. Hey, um, well, I need DC out. I need uh, external viewfinder, uh, external touchscreen, and I want uh, I want the audio to not be to be less of an issue. So I guess Pro IO it is for me anyway. And now that they looks like they one of the problems with the Pro IO is that it never powered anything. No one could power anything off it. No one plugged it. any accessory known to man wouldn't really run very well. But I think I must have they must have updated this module since now listing as being it'll do one and a half amps. So Pro IO might be might be have had a bit of a a uh, bit of a quiet hardware bump, and that's uh, probably you know. So if you've got one, if you've got a later one, if you've got a Pro IO, let me know because I'd love to know uh, if this is uh, if it's if they've updated the power or if or if you've had to send yours back to Red to get the DC out happening. And Very frustrating. Speaking I was waiting for a long time for that thing. Speaking yeah. of letting us know, we have yeah. a uh, an email response from Nat. Nat has sent us an email regarding episode one two five, and it was actually kind of aimed at me. But I think it was referring to what you had to say about anamorphic lenses. Yeah, I haven't. Um, I've, I've read it, but I haven't quite formulated a response. But we can sort of work on one now. I mean, it was really talking about. I was talking about uh, comparing, I guess, the uh, anamorphic and spherical lenses and the changes in perspective. Now, well, let me let me just clarify this by saying the underlying. Uh, interwoven with this with Nat he does point out something that is true though this wasn't the point we were making which is that if you were to take a 50mm shot and you could uh, cut into it to match an 85 and make them look the same on the screen then neither would have um, any variation in depth of field in the sense that if you cut out from a long lens uh, from a wide shot a long lens shot um it's exactly the same. Now, the qualities are the same because you have to blow it up. But as long as you don't move the actual lens, it's the same. We tend to think of a long lens having a shallower depth of field because we're not so aware of that focus issue um, in a wide shot. But it's exactly the same because mathematically, the light shoots along in the same line, hits the same kind of maths and goes through the lens the same way. So so that's a phenomenon. And he tells the story of, Dan, of, Stanley, of Kubrick actually firing a DP when the DP... Uh, decided to put on a, a sort of a longer lens instead of moving the camera in and argued it would have the same effect. And, of course, that wouldn't be the case. If you move the camera in, it fundamentally changes the parallax and the way things are moving. And if you draw lines, they're all different. Exactly so, right. So that's all true. And we're not arguing with that at all. His point, though, was that Jason should have seen no difference between a spherical and a anamorphic uh, side by side in terms of um, what Jason described in that last show. But all I'm going to say is... If they were both the same focal length. Focal, yeah. But yes, but I'm going to say, that wasn't the demonstration that we we were doing on set to do the side by side. We were actually comparing oranges and apples doing a 50 mil, uh, a 50 mil with a 28 mil. So like a 28 mil um, uh, spherical with a 50 mil anamorphic and changing the camera to to match so there was not only a perspective there was a perspective change because you're changing the the subject to camera distance and of course it was a completely different um focal length but nat to show there are no hard feelings because i think it was just that we didn't articulate that correctly as opposed to you um 
were wrong in your email, if you, I'm going to send you an email link and I'm going to send you out an RC baseball cap to say thanks for the comment because it was a well thought out, well constructed email, and I love that. Uh, even if they're criticising us, um, it was a good page of uh, well thought out thoughts. I just think it's actually the case that Jason physically saw a difference because lenses and camera positions were moved to uh, match shots. Yes, and it's always a, a, um, a bit of a can of worms when you start talking about you know changing lenses and sensors changing you know sensors suddenly changing your lens which they don't do and um, exactly it's that so, phenomenon that if you were to crop in on the sensor you aren't changing suddenly uh, you have a different lens but you don't you have, but you don't yeah exactly now that being said um it's all a lot easier when you do it in post because you kind of somehow miraculously realize that nothing's changing and you're just doing a crop uh when you're doing them in the camera it does always seem weird but then of course inherent in this as we said is that people normally adjust the camera to compensate and once you start adjusting the camera you certainly do see different things um but yeah, yeah. thanks for that email and if you've got something that you think we're wrong about feel free to send us an email because i'd love to uh, hear from chances you. are you're right that we were wrong yeah in fact uh you know we don't pretend to be uh, the world's only experts in this uh, we pretend to be just uh, kind of really keen to explore it. And I've got to say, Jason, I've been doing some phenomenally interesting work today um, with uh, testing out responses of sensors to different lights and uh, and lights and mapping the lights. A lot of people go into a lot of trouble, and I think even later in the show you're going to be talking about somebody doing a difference between raw, yeah. between different cameras. Yeah. What we're doing is the difference in, um, say, daylight between different lights and how different lights affect different sensors because in the CMOS sensor, you've got a bunch of filters in there and uh, the spectral response curves and how many of the measurements that were you know, aimed to handle all this became obsolete while we weren't watching. So some of the stuff that was quite valid, and I mean way beyond just getting the color temperature and the tint right from a few years ago is actually not true anymore. And uh, yeah, so I haven't got the results yet, but um, just as we all got to go to where I was looking at the first um, tungsten runs we were doing up on the uh, screen. So I'm um, probably flag that next week but oh my god it's so interesting i love doing geeky testing stuff and uh, especially when i when i'm onto a i've got like a bone you know when i've got a like a, a whiff of something that's kind of interesting we start exploring it and i mean this stuff is making much more difference to the quality of the images than dicking around with some of the stuff i spend time right. dicking around with so this, yeah just talking about sensor responses to different color temps it's actually more to do with the quality of the lights and mm-hmm. uh, a whole lot of stuff to do especially with the advent of uh, leds so we'll right. discuss that and show coming up but i mean yeah that's one of the great parts. spiky spiky spectral stuff spiky spectral stuff is exactly what we're looking into excellent um yeah no it's really good and we've been doing some really rigorous testing on that it's been great i mean it's, it's just so much fun the best part is my job really so we get so to lock away that, in the studio for uh, a day where do we how do we see this then what what form will it take uh, well, initially, it'll go into FXPHD. We're doing a class on background fundamentals, just showing this um, because we were doing something explaining how you can get more accurately. So, so a lot of the stuff that you focus on when somebody says, how can I get my colors looking accurate in post revolve around color science and color space? You know, like, is this the right, uh, is it tungsten, is it daylight, blah, 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 in the camera? Right. And you've already made some mistakes if you're only worrying about it when it hits the lens. You need to worry about it in the studio before you even get uh, to that point. So that's what we're kind of addressing. Uh, it's a bit complicated, but I'll, I'll go through it next week. But I'm just, I mean, because uh, I haven't finished it yet. I'm not, yeah. Uh, but we've been doing, uh, yeah, we've been in for the whole day doing uh, some really, I mean, actually 
great thing about this is you could do it yourself and we'll totally recommend that people do. But once you see the results, I think you'd be really surprised. But it's great when we get to um, test that stuff out and, uh, and do it. Excellent. Hey, um, you've, in the show notes, uh, listed your lenses. Is that in response also to last week? It was. It was in response to, because I started to, uh, I was talking about my gear and what I'd recently been rigged up with and then I went off to do talk about lenses and then I think we got sort of sidetracked or you interrupted me, Mike, apparently. That's another thing. You have to stop doing that, okay? I've been told that I have to tell you off for not doing that. I finished talking. You can talk now. Uh, I wasn't interrupting you. <laughs> I am guilty of that. I apologize. Though I am trying to keep it moving along because you do go on a bit, Jason. I do. Absolutely. Just, I crap I'm on a lot. just keep moving it on. Yes. Uh, we have been, I have been congratulated on at least, my, at least me for uh, saying uh, obviously a lot less. Splendid. I, you. you seem to have had a lot of feedback. Um, <laughs> luckily, as it was criticizing me, I was shielded from it, but I'm glad. Yeah. I, 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 I love everything so, that you anyway. say, Jace. Tell me about lenses. Okay, so I want, was going to go through what my kit was yep. at the moment. And it's a bit of a mishmash, definitely. That's why I'm sort of, I am kind of hoping that, you know, say the Canon Cine Prime, someone will come out with a, um, a, a, a proper... Uh, a full set of those or some sort of reasonably cheap but fast um, alternative to say S4s because at the moment I've got a bit of a mishmash some Zeiss ZEs and you know some some um, Leica stuff and Tekina and bits and pieces so uh, working wide to tight I've got a Tekina 11 to 16 just a regular one just a regular Tekina EOS this is all EOS mount because that's See, I've got that in a, I've got that in a PL you probably mount. have the Ducos, Duclos PL, PL mounted version yeah. yes which is terrific and on, on pretty much covers full frame 5k on the Epic uh, then I've got the 24 one for the Samyang uh, well, that it's, I've had it cinemodded by uh, Matt Duclos, but I think now Sam Yang are doing a whole bunch of, uh, they're cutting out the middleman, doing a whole bunch of cinemodded glass, which is basically declicked irises and gears on the uh, gears on the focus. Uh, so 24mm 1.4 Sam Yang, cinemodded. Uh, a Zeiss ZE 35 1.4, again cinemodded. A Canon, one thing I don't use too much, but I still have it, a 45mm uh, tilt shift. The Canon 2.8mm, no, 2.8mm, 45mm tilt shift. You've got the 45. Yes, huh. you've got the super ultra crazy ass wide one, haven't you? No, Six. no, I haven't I, actually. I oh, sold that. didn't you? Oh, you got rid of it. Yeah, because I wasn't using Yeah, the using wide it, ones. Well, they're also the wide ones kind of nuts. There's the 45mm is not a bad sort of sweet spot because... I mean, Otherwise you don't the see wide, the effect enough. Yeah, well, the wide stuff is really good at doing what it's intended to do, I guess, perspective correction. If you're doing architectural, where you want to sort of uh, get rid of the whole, you know, disappearing off to infinity, where the top of the building is much smaller than the bottom of the building, and do those kind of corrections. But it's not being so wide, it's not so great at actually doing the tilt-shift classic mm. out-of-focusness, which the 45 is not bad, particularly on, say, full-frame, which... This being a stills lens is very, you know, very capable on, say, like the 5D. Uh, it's it's wide enough, so you can, it's quite flexible, and but you can get stuff out of focus still. Even being 2.8, you can get stuff out of focus. 
so I quite like it. I don't put it on a lot because I'm sort of very conscious of it being, you know, a bit of an 80s hackneyed kind of a look. But, you know, you can use it here and there. It's quite nice in the mix of an edit here and there, the odd shot. I just have to remember that it's there and I have to remember to put it on. And it is one of those, all of those time, those shift, shift tilt stuff are a complete time tunnel of just fracking around with them. Like, do I turn it left? Oh, do I go 45 degrees and then tilt it this way and then pan it? Oh, do I put the put it the other way and then have to re-rig and tilt down and, and reframe? Or do you, know, do you go horizontal? Do you go vertical? So, um, yeah, it's a, it, putting them on is a bit of a time tunnel of fracking around to try and get the best, the best, more interesting look. And then really you can most of the time end up with something that looks like a, an 80s hair commercial. Um, then I have the 50, uh, Zeiss ZE 51.4, Cinemodded, and 85 1.4. I mean, the main thing was they were, they're nice. Uh, they're nice, metal-bodied, beautifully built, Hard stops on the focus lenses. Uh, admittedly, they are all electronic irises, so you have to start getting to jog wheels or touch screens to be able to change the iris. Um, but they are beautifully built, and the number of times I got off a plane and pulled out an 85 L, L series or, or 50 LCs and it didn't work at the other end. I love the look of the, the, you know, the Canon L glasses. Very interesting. No, they have real character to them, but more often than not, you know, I've, I've, I've had more, I've had them service more times than I've, I've been able to shoot with them. They're beautiful, but they are very, they do, for a pro expensive L glass thing, you know, for a professional lens, they do, I don't know, they, they, they do need to be babied a bit which sort of annoyed me, really. So, And also, just with the lenses not really having stops on the focus, it was you know, it's kind of a bit, you know, not embarrassing, but it's it's a bit... It's it's not ideal giving them to a focus puller who's got to put, want to put a follow focus on them and mark lenses up and, you know, suddenly you bump it and all of his marks change. So there's something to be said for... The uh, nice full full metal glass with uh, with 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 a nice big focus travel. That's the other thing. The, the focus on on this has a slightly longer travel, I think, than than the L glass, which really can be only a few mil from like four feet to five feet. So that's another thing. A bit more travel. Uh, then I have a Contax actually a one three five mil. I don't use it very much, but it's it's there. It's a one three five f two. So it's a Contax. Uh, lens, and I think it's probably the same optics inside as a really beautiful lens, the Zeiss Super, uh, not Zeiss Super Speed, but the Zeiss Prime 135mm, like a Cine PL Prime. Oh, really? It's a classic, uh, you know, um, it's a classic, beautiful lens, the 135. Um, and I think this is optically, I think construction wise, this is exactly the same. So it's a 135 F2, it's a little bit more expensive than a lot of the other 135s out there. But that is again cinemodded with a Litex uh, mount adapter on the back to go from contacts mount to uh, to go to EOS. Uh, it's a manual iris lens. Uh, but what I do like about it, and what's kind of clever, is and uh, part of the reason I think I got rid of my seventy to two hundred is that it's apart from being very small, very light, and a stop faster than a um, seventy to two hundred. It actually fits the 
Canon doubler on the back, and very few lenses will let you. Will oh, really? Let you put that Canon that white Canon doubler on. It's designed to go on a lot of white lenses, like the four hundreds and three hundreds and two hundreds. All the all the Canon because of the way the rear elements stick out on some of those things. Uh, but just with this construction of this lens, I can get a. I can put it on the one three five. So I end up with a. Essentially, although you lose a couple of stops, I end up with a whatever it is a two seventy millimeter. I'm going to say it's an f2 lens because it's an f2 looking lens. It's <laughs> it's just with two stops lost, right? We've been through this before. It's uh, you lose two stops by putting the adapter on, but it is blowing up. Uh, it's not an f4 lens. It's not an f4 depth of field. You know what I mean? It doesn't have the look of a lens that is has an f4 iris on it. It's an f2 iris, but with a doubler, a magnifica- magnification on it. If that makes sense think of these things as uh, like a times two magnification versus actually physically changing the stop of the lens times two magnification which means there's less light getting to the sensor because less yes. uh, a smaller part of the frame is being now the whole frame exactly and it's done optically not digital you're using half of the frame so this is the same way that that other that sort of magic adapter or whatever it was the other day when by going the opposite way it was actually gaining us light this is losing us two stops of light but you are still blowing up on an f2 image so um it has a much shallower depth of field say than if it was a 300 mil f4 piece of glass but and it's much more compact, and it breaks down into two little pieces. So this is yes. uh, actually you, well, you and I were talking about this the other day when you were talking about wanting to get into sports arenas or functions where they you know get the tape measure out and won't let you in if you have anything over three hundred mil, you know, like three hundred millimeter long, physically long lenses. So if you can have like a smaller lens with a with a doubler, and um, and get away with it that way. So this is just nice and easy way of being able to have um, a lot of options in a very small little, you know, briefcase size Pelican kit. Well, I solved that problem by getting a 500 mil lens. You did actually, you did, yes. Now, what is what lens was it again? It's, it was a mirror lens, a reflex lens, whatever it's we want to call it. It's a mirror lens, yeah. So it's, I don't know, most people that I've shown it to have never even seen one. So yeah. if you haven't seen it, imagine a thing that's about as fat as an 85 millimeter Canon. Um, doesn't look like that, but it's you know that kind of fat. It's actually way lighter than an 85 mil L series Canon, um, but it's a 500 mil lens, and it does it because it bounces light forward and backwards inside the lens with mirrors. Now the price of doing this is reflected in the fact that this lens only cost me like 125 dollars um, second hand. Well, it's new, but they stopped making it in like 1987, so no one's ever used it. So it's new in that sense, but right. old and second hand in the sense that it's a old tech but i've got to tell you jace for 125 dollars this lens produces 500 millimeter pictures and it's really lightweight now is it as good as a canon you know uh no it's not because it just isn't and it has a weird bokeh because it has this kind of donut effect that's going on behind it yeah so google reflex or google i guess reflecting lenses or reflex lenses i can't think what you actually call them for for the the camera lens version but it's essentially the um camera lens version of a reflecting telescope which has that if you i'm sure you've seen them but you may not have realized it has like a black dot in the middle of the front element which is essentially a mirror so the way they actually 
kind of it's kind of like a telescoped um it's in two parts i guess it goes out to the mirror and then back and and then out out the front so it's an, an unusual kind of setup you get a chunkier thicker shorter lens but with the same like a 500 mil but it's like a f f8 or something crazy yeah it's f8 uh, it's not obviously automatic so you it, the thing is it's got a whole bunch of sort of caveats on it for one a bit of term like you're not going to shoot sports motorsports where you've got to you know fly around and get instant focus because it's just not going to happen um and secondly you know it's you're at f8 so it's just that's it that's yeah. one option and there f8. is complete lack of iris they've just through the construction of the lens it has a fixed um a fixed iris but i'm going to put a couple of pictures in the show notes that i have done for you dear listener where i've taken the same picture on a 50 mil and then the same exact tripod setup with the 500 mil so you can actually see uh, what we're talking about and um it's look it's not as good as a you know super razor sharp um uh canon lens but it's not bad and for 125 dollars yeah sure and and i can easily carry it crazy weird sort of calamari kind of bokeh because it has a black dot in the middle of its lens it's like if you go and stick a per circle of gaffer tape on the front end of your lens you're going to get weird uh, you're going to get weird bokeh too i was at a sporting event uh testing it and i it's that kind of a sport uh baseball where you know where someone's going to be because they're either going to be you know at a base I and mean, it's perfect so in that environment it was actually almost too close <laughs> because yeah. yeah i couldn't get uh you know I mean, it worked really well, but it was, um, I knew where people were going to be. I knew where the batter was going to be. I knew where the pitcher was. So I could focus up. It's super, even at F8, it's super shallow. I mean, it really Mm -hmm. is. Yeah, you're not really, because it's so long, you're not really noticing the fact that it's, you could say it's a fairly slow lens. Oh, absolutely not. It's still going to, you know, give you some nice shallow depth because it is insanely. Can you put a doubler on it? Did you, does your Nick Cannon... I, I have not tried putting a doubler That'd on be it. Cool I don't to think see I if it falls apart and <laughs> if it can physically fit in to. and do a thousand mil f eight, but with like sixteen. When you see the photos that I've just sent you uh, in the show notes, you'll see just how crazy it is, and it's so crazy. Ask for this incredibly lightweight lens. For me, this is the big thing. I can put it in a backpack. I could go into a sporting event. No one's going to pull me up and say whoa. And even if they pick it up, it feels really lightweight and doesn't feel like it's you know pro glass. Yeah, and that can be the difference. You know, it's all very well having a two hundred on a. I, I've got up seventy to two hundred with a doubler, and that four hundred doesn't get in as tight as this, but it screams, you know, professional photographer or somebody doing something that they shouldn't. Yes. The only thing is, you absolutely have to use a tripod. I mean, I, <laughs> I was like, is it old age or am I just shaking? I, no, I just couldn't get it. Five, no, five hundred mil. T- yeah, it's no. a telescope. It is a telescope. At five hundred mil, must have tripod. But yeah, I yeah. can have a really lightweight tripod because it doesn't weigh anything. The plus, though, although it was a little bit quirky sometimes, and I've seen a few weird artifacts with it. With the seventy two hundred, is that you could actually handheld it, handhold it because it was a stabilized lens, and you know, even shooting video, you could, um, you know, you could get away with it because it was smoothed. Yeah, like when I was shooting. Handheld literally shooting grizzly bears in Yellowstone, whatever that was, a year or two ago with um, with FXPHD, I would not want to have had this lens because the bears were moving quickly and I would want to, you know, have all the benefits of the stabilizer, me moving quickly and, 
and the sharp focus that comes from the automatic um, uh, uh, you know, focusing of the Canon lenses, which is so great. But in a sporting event where I know someone's going to be, you know, where it's uh, a clearly defined um, thing that I'm trying to photograph, this yeah. is just is for 125 bucks. Bargain. Anyway, enough said. Can, I, can I? Can I was quickly going to touch on the weird things with the stabilizers. Do you remember? I think we talked. We looked at it once, and I thought, "What the hell is going on with this image?" I was th- maybe the first week or so I had my Epic and we shot some surfers at, I think I was even going in like two or 300 frames per second, like put punching into like 3K or 2K. So it was like insanely magnified. Yeah. But uh, I was shooting on the 70 to 200 with the stabilizer on. Yeah. And there was this, at 300 frames a second, you expect, you should expect everything to be like parked. Even the wobbliest of hand holding, hand holding, you should see. You know, that should be completely smoothed out. Yet there there was this fine kind of wiggle in the image and it was like pulsing and wiggling. And you thought, how can anything be moving that fast at 300 frames a second? What I'm sure I was seeing was the servos of the stabilizing actually are moving so fast and just try keeping that lens parked that at you know normal shutter speeds and shooting stills and at normal frames per second 25 50 whatever you don't see it but i was going so slow i was actually starting to physically see seeing the oscillation of the of the lens actually seeing the servos working seeing the correction of the optics of the of the stabilizer moving around so it's, we're moving so that if it, it at three as i say at 300 frames a second it may be with a i think it's also the fact that i was on say a 70 to 200 with a doubler and i was also working at probably 3k or 2k on the epic so i was actually magnifying again just sort of seeing how close you could get uh, and and also you had to go into that 3K or so to be able to do those higher frame rates at the time. So it was kind of, I was definitely, like, how the hell can anything be moving? It's 300 frames a second. Nothing should be uh, buzzing around this quick. But yeah, it was actually going so fast. I was seeing seeing the, the optics of the lens correcting, doing those little tiny little quivering micro corrections. So that's something to watch out for. That's a pretty extreme case, but um, yeah, that's the only explanation I have. If you've got a better optical, if you know, if you've seen this before, let me know. So yeah, that was kind of weird. Well, as you've rat hole, let me rat hole. Um, I saw this during the week. So this is completely other end of my F8s. Um, There is now the opportunity to rent the Kubrick lenses. Yes, the Kubrick lenses. These are the lenses that were uh, designed to be not f1.2 not f1 f0.7 uh, they've got them hooked up on a, a ps cam x35 so right. you can now rent the ps technica camera and it's been modded to have the uh, 35 mil zeiss 0.7 the 50 mil and there's also a 18 25 32 50 75 cook speed pancro rotating bncr mount uh gear but mm-hmm. those um there's a website which put it in the show notes uh, for the kubrick collection and you get uh, if you go there you can actually see the rental companies that are, are renting this and there are very few of these lenses that were actually made they were made initially to film the dark side of the moon for nasa um it's hardcore even jason you on gaffer tape at wide open <laughs> may get to a point that you say, actually, I probably want mm. one side of her eyelash to the other to be um, 
to be all in focus. So, but this was yes, but these were to do. Uh, what was it? What was it? The um, the duelists or nope. what was the Kubrick? No, 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 no. Nope. Want to guess again? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Barry Lyndon wasn't correct. It? Right, Barry Lyndon to do what is now quite easily quite easily achieved uh, to do lighting someone with just uh, candlelight. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a magnificent piece of engineering, and mm. and I like the fact that you know they're actually the lenses that Kubrick shot with. But you require full fully five rotations to allow the uh, camera to rack over the viewing position to get to the film position. It's like it's it's you require an enormous amount of sort of hand operation to operate the lens. What to go from infinity to minimum focus? You mean? Yeah, right. It's um it's they're really nicely engineered. They're great historical things, and you can now rent them. But you're right. Yeah. Like, uh, I don't know that in looking at the footage, I would immediately say, I can't imagine how I could get this any other way. Yeah. That being said, uh, I would not deny anyone the pleasure of uh, renting them and, and having a crack at them. And, com- I mean, we're a little bit spoiled now where you can just go for a couple hundred bucks, go and buy something F14 or F12. But uh, around the time they were shooting this, lenses weren't that fast, really. You know, even primes weren't 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 staggeringly fast. So f point f point seven was point uh, seven, just yeah, a, yeah, it was not was not just a little uh, just a little faster than the rest of the lenses out. There was it was significantly uh, significantly faster. So yeah, good on him for pushing the. Pushing the boundaries, and you know the film. I'm not a huge fan of Barry Lyndon, but uh, as a film, but uh, also the Duelists. I'm sure there's a bit of that in there. You can have a look at there's some beautiful. His he kind of pioneered a lot of that available light look, and when when at the time when things were being high con lit up the wazoo, and every single kind of period film of the time just looked shocking. Stuff like this, and and the Duelist, of course, which is uh, I, I foolishly remember, is a uh, that is isn't that a um, that's a Ridley Scott, isn't it? Anyway, fool. Uh, yeah, I was yeah. I was holding back. You mean the nineteen seventy seven one, right? The... Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I was holding back because I didn't want to interrupt you, but that was in fact Ridley <laughs> Scott. You fool. Yes, but um, yes, there was very few films being being shot that way, and and there was a real at the you know real um, Barry Lyndon was um, yeah, and the the bokeh the, this thing just look. really yeah it it was way before you know the currently shallow depth of field look is something we're kind of used to. But anyway, I, mm. I just thought it was fun to know they were actually out in the rental pool because they're not like making more of these. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What they're insured for? Yeah, it's a good point, isn't it? Yeah, anyway. it's sort of really. They shouldn't really be out there. They're going to get stolen. They're going to get dropped. They're going to get lost. Oh, well, they're, they're going to get, get stolen. What are you going to do? Like put it on eBay. Now these aren't the Stanley Kubrick lenses. They just happen to no, no, also just be some <laughs> other modified dark side like of the moon, moon NASA, NASA lenses, lenses at point seven. Yeah, yeah, yeah the ones take uh, lowest Kubrick offer. Projected. Yeah, buy now, hundred bucks. Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think so. Anyway, where will we be back? Oh, so let's get uh, to the Red Room because I want to play my yeah. interview with the guys uh, on Curfew. Now, uh, as I think I said at the top of the uh, show, we're going to talk to Jerome and to uh, Daniel. And uh, Daniel was the uh, cinematographer and uh, Jerome was handling the grade and the post uh, side of things. The film is 
I think really great. So I just want to put a plug in. If you haven't seen it, we, I think, give away a little bit. I don't think we give away it that much. But there are some scenes um, that we discuss in quite a lot of detail because I think they, they warrant it. So if you have seen it, uh, great. If you haven't, it's on iTunes. It's hardly anything to buy, like a buck or two bucks or something. But if you can buy the HD version, it's worth doing it because the uh, technique of actually running out to film back, as you'll hear in this interview, um, is more uh, apparent when it's a, a bit bigger than obviously the standard def stuff from the uh, iTunes store. You are entering the Red Room. Hey, so, so let me start by saying congratulations on the film. Outstanding. I loved the film, but also congratulations on the success of it. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, it's been uh, very surreal, the whole, the whole thing, but it's, it's wonderful. So, I mean, a lot of people obviously ask you um, about the success at the awards level, but I wanted to sidestep that if I could and just ask you, um, you must have been very rewarding to get the film done at a creative level. Yeah, I mean, it's always after the fact that, you know, narratives start to be rewritten when you have a bit of success on, on how a film was, was made and how it came to fruition. But like every other film or project I've ever worked on, the, the pre-production and production was, uh, you know, a, 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 a giant cluster bleep. And, uh, you know, it just, just to get through a day and get into one festival was phenomenal so for it to go on a festival run and you know we we, we won Claremont Ferrand that the, the audience award and then it went on this huge run and then to get shortlisted and then nominated and then to have that special night was was just as I said very surreal indeed. Um, how did the film come to get made in the sense of not why did you write it but uh, how did it come to get made in terms of you know, how did you fund it? How did you actually get to produce it? Well, Sean Christensen, who who directed it and wrote in it and starred in it and and uh, produced it, he he's also a screenwriter and writes for some studios and has you know sold some some scripts. So way back, he he bought a red kind of. He was an early adopter, and we did another film which Jerome created uh, called Brink, which had some success. Sean wanted to do another film before he sort of embarked on trying to become a feature film director. And he, he wrote this, he wrote Curfew, I think, in like two days um, and sh- showed his kind of close collaborators. And, and it, it really it, it happened very quickly. He, he self-financed the film himself. Talk to me about the, uh, the major cinematic choice of shooting anamorphically. And I just want to discuss that in terms of the framing now. You know, doing a single or even a two-shot in anamorphic is not, you know, a natural way to go from a framing point of view. Can you talk to me about that choice? Yeah, and also because we have a, a nine-year-old girl with a 5'11", six-foot uh, lead protagonist. So that, that offered up a couple of problems too. But I think both Sean and I share a lot of the same aesthetic sensibilities um, and we're very kind of enamored with early Scorsese and Paul Thomas Anderson's work with Robert Ellswood, to name a few. And for us anyway, trying to shoot anamorphically and also trying to shoot with Panavision lenses um, was very obvious. And for me and him, those kind of mid-80s, late-80s, very American anamorphic Panavision feeling films, they kind of scream cinema for us. They're in our DNA. 
So very early on in the process, we thought, we, we, we discussed how can we do this with, with very little money. And in fact, I approached Panavision um, in New York and, and spoke with, the, with a guy called John Fishburne, who's no longer with them. He's somewhere else now. But he, he was instrumental in putting together a package that is usually beyond the dreams of, of, of people like us who are working with a very small budget. So I, I would have to thank... Thank John Fishburn immensely for kind of putting together the package. And originally, we were we wanted to shoot with C series lenses, which are smaller and have a specific look. Um, but they're very hard to obtain, especially in New York. And Dante Spinotti was shooting Tower Heist at the time and had every C series lens in the whole country, basically. So we had the option then to use Primo anamorphic Panavision lenses, um, which are wonderful, but they're gigantic. Yeah, they're pretty heavy. <laughs> yeah, uh, but I wasn't going to say no to them. So we went with the, we went with the Primo anamorphics and primarily using the 40, the 50, and 75. We had a, we had a 36 and a 100, and we also had a one 135, which was, I think it was an E-series. It wasn't a Primo, and it was, it was kind of milky, and we used it, I think, only in one shot. But we basically use the 50 and the 40 mostly. Because I've got to say that one of the things that didn't need to be considered in that period of uh, American cinema that using anamorphics that you're, you're talking about is the vast array of places that would then take the film. So, for example, back then, you know, you had a very clear idea that I was going to get it maybe into a cinema, maybe to a film festival, but I certainly wasn't thinking about the internet and YouTube and <laughs> online and all these other different places. And I'm wondering, because clearly from some of the shots in the film, namely uh, there's a couple I can just draw your attention to. The, there's a bowling sequence where they, uh, um, they're either side of the frame and the bowling lanes <clears throat> are right down the middle of the frame. And there's also outside the women's restrooms, uh, the ladies, the women are on far right, camera right, and he's far camera left. And in both of those occasions, I was thinking, you're not shooting to protect four by three here. You're not even shooting to protect 16 <laughs> by nine. Um, was that a really deliberate decision? We're just going to have to throw out any consideration of this getting cropped at some later stage? Yeah, I mean, look, if you're going to shoot scope, either Super 35 or anamorphic, the, the notion of them protecting for anything is absurd to me. So, you know, luckily we were doing an independently financed project where you can basically say, let's do whatever we want. If we had a, a studio behind us or a bigger production company behind us, it definitely would have been a, a fight. And I've been in those situations before, and it's very annoying. But the idea that one would shoot anamorphic cinemascope and protect for 4.3 or 16.9 is, is just patently absurd. And, and I will never sign on to a project where I have to do that because it's just it's unacceptable to me. So I was going to say, in that scene um, that we're uh, referring to, the bowling scene, uh, they're sitting so much left and right of frame. And if I was doing a two-shot in classic kind of film school sense, I'd say, oh, well, you don't want to you know, get them too far apart because the audience is going to look down the middle. And you've got a shot where not only are the, the actors extreme left and right of frame, but they're darker than what's in the middle. And the middle has like four or five video screens playing and people <laughs> walking by. And you haven't even lit them in the foreground to really uh, compete with the background. Now, I'd like to think, obviously, that cinematically you're trying to say to me there's a lot of distance between these two characters at this point. But at some level, were you just worried about the audience, where they were going to be looking? Yeah, definitely. And that's, that, that shot, in fact, is an extreme example. Um, 
And, you know, if I was to be perfectly honest, I think I would have had them a little closer together. They're very much on, on the edge there. But, you know, in a shoe like that, when you're shooting for six days and you're, you're just trying to sort of survive, you're going to make some mistakes uh, along the way. And then, of course, afterwards, you embrace them as sort of pieces of artistic flourish or something. But if I could reshoot that, I would definitely have them a little closer together. But, I, you know, it, that shot actually works in, in the in terms of the subtext of what's going on in that moment. Yeah, so I didn't mean to imply it was a criticism. I actually thought that it did totally work for the subtext of how far apart they yeah, were. Yeah, no, I'd love to take credit for it, but I, I think we were just battling like stuff we couldn't move in the bowling alley, et cetera, et cetera, and they had to be that far apart. I'm a big fan of Christopher Doyle and, and the kind of work he's done in Cinemascope, you know, in the mood for love and... and 2046 are, are are just sort of standout films for me in the, in the pantheon and, and he very much plays with the edges of of his frames and you know if you do it wrong it can be disastrous but we we try to to do it in the right way let me ask you this and i'm this is leading into some technical things we're going to get into in a second but how much light did you have for that scene i mean how were you lighting your actors because you were shooting on the red. I'm going to go into that pipeline, but I'd just like to know what we were starting with in terms of noise levels and stuff. We had a pretty decent lighting package on this film. It wasn't massive, but you know, going back to those late 80s American anamorphic films, you need to light to a certain stop, and you want a thick negative, and you don't want to screw the, your first AC completely. So we had a decent lighting package, but the challenge of that scene is... When you're in an environment where you're just not big enough to control everything, you have to very often balance to pre-existing sources. So obviously in that scene, we had those TV screens. So we were, we were ISO 800, and we were close to, to wide open on the Primos, which I think is like 2-1 or something. And they were, it was just very, very basic cross-back keys, you know, I think it was like two reefers or two 650s or something. It was very, very minimal. We were very much just balancing to the computer screens in the background. Yeah, and on the amorphic lenses, when you go fully wide open, it's when they can kind of really muck up. They can do all sorts of things from sort of flaring to in a, in a nasty way to kind of skewy things. Were you trying to stay away from wide open on the anamorphics or did you just find with these primos that you were okay wide open? We were pretty much okay. I mean, I wanted to try and shoot at a two eight four split, but for various reasons that didn't happen a lot of the time, and I was wider open. But certainly the forty, the fifty, seventy five, and the, and and to a lesser extent the thirty six perform quite well at wide open, and I wasn't that concerned. The other lenses we had got pretty busted up at, at that aperture, but. You know, another reason for choosing anamorphic is to embrace all of those characteristics that are considered sort of optically aberrant. And that's kind of the beauty of those lenses is the, the weirdness you get out of the, the bokeh and the, 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 the weird skewing and the, you know, the barrel distortion and the flares. and, and the, the painterly kind of abstract quality is... is for me, anyway, the reason to shoot anamorphically. So I'm not afraid of those. It's just you need to know what's pleasing and what kind of doesn't work. <laughs> and I think we, we, we achieve that for the most part. 
Daniel, I'm going to ask you this question, and, and I, I just know that Jerome's sitting knowing where I'm going to go with this, but <laughs> how are you balancing the light uh, color temperatures on this? Because it sounded like you were shooting like tungsten on those foreground actors, but God knows what the lights were in the bowling alley, or and I presume you didn't get to relight the bowling alley. No, we didn't. I mean, with a lot of red stuff, I'll balance to 4,400 and then adjust accordingly, and, and obviously the red camera even now still performs better with with blue light, as it were. So less so on this film, but normally I'll put a quarter or half blue on, on tungsten units um, when I shoot with the red. I didn't do that as much here. I'm not even sure why I didn't do that. But, you know, you get you do get a noise in the shadows from tungsten units a little bit. But in fact, as the colorimetry and everything else has improved, that 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 noise looks more like grain and it looks kind of interesting. So I wasn't too afraid of, of the, the tungsten lighting and, and how I was going to balance it. Okay. And I just have to ask you, you know, this is a personal thing and it's a complete aside, but just my absolute favorite sequence or shots in this film, are just spectacularly great from a DOP point of view is her dancing down the, the lanes. Can you just tell me how you shot that? Cause I just think that is just so wonderful. Yeah, I mean, I really do like that scene, and it, you know, it, it obviously there's the formal aspects of the horizontal ratio of, of anamorphic with the bowling lanes, etc. And her her performance is is just sort of wondrous. But the reality is, we had to fight to get the bowling alley to give us permission to put our dolly, our Fisher Eleven, onto the to, to the lane. So really. Apart from any aesthetic choices, it was just a giant struggle to get them to allow us to, to, to go down the, the far lane so we could get the right angle to do that. And I love the formality of, of, of that framing in those shots. There's something weirdly Kubrickian about the whole thing, but I, I really love that, those shots too. Well, it's Kubrick, but it's also joyous. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's definitely joyous. And, and I think, you know, just it's, it's a sort of iconic to see this little girl at the far edge, the left far edge, doing a dance with the whole scope and space of of the bowling alley in front of her and people are still bowling and you see these balls going down. It's absurd, surreal, joyous, iconic quality to that. And and it definitely, you know, I, I'm proud of that scene as well. And that whole scene just came together. Sean had a song and he had, he brought a choreographer on and they worked hard that day to get it down. And of course we lost the rights to use that song once we got it to festivals. So Sean actually, who's a very talented musician, did his own version with the same tempo. So in fact, the people you see dancing are dancing to an entirely different song when we were on set doing it. How did you light her? Um, honestly, the wide stuff was pretty much existing light. I think I bounced a couple of Lico's into, into a ceiling somewhere. And then for the close-ups, again, I was probably bouncing some Lico's off of some 4x4 or 4x8 beadboard with some muslin, but very, very minimal. The, the lighting in that bowling alley was, was actually quite interesting. There was a lot of spotlighting and it was a pretty decent color temperature. We didn't have the time to light it, really. We, we, were, we had like eight hours in, the, in that bowling alley. So, John, let me swing to you and say, 
So you've got red footage, even if it's MX, it does prefer daylight. Um, you've got what seems to be fairly low light levels and you've got a bunch of mixes of lights. How hard did you have to work to grade and get this sequence to work and how much did the DOP just nail it in one? Admittedly, he's listening. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he he is listening. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, it, it it was surprisingly evenly evenly lit. I, I expected so much so much worse going into it. I I talked to Sean about the bowling alley scene uh, before they 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 shot it, and we knew that they weren't going to have much time, and it, it it seemed like it might be a recipe for for disaster. But uh, there was a there was a lot there. I mean, we. Uh, we spent a lot of time on the grade in general, but I wouldn't say that we struggled with that scene more than uh, more more than and than any other. And it, it wasn't particularly noisy, uh, even it, it was it was surprisingly flat. I I think if anything, what we did is we 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 added some some slashes of light here and there, uh, darkened some areas. I mean, there's a lot of secondaries in that stuff that are I think are pretty pretty subtle. But it was just uh, a lot of sculpting and, and, and molding that uh, that Daniel, Sean, and I spent a lot of time on. So because we're, we're about to get into this interesting decision to go back to film and then back to, to effectively video again, tell me how clean was the image? Because I would have thought that the one thing, you know, if I was in pre-production and someone said, oh, you're going to add more grain to this, I'd be, well, you're going to get quite a lot of noise, which is going to look like grain just because we're shooting in exteriors and it's night and it's dark. Now, I don't think you're going to need extra noise or grain in the shot. So how, how clean was it at the... Uh, at this stage, before you did anything par just grading it um, from the red footage? Um, well, uh, some scenes uh, were noisier than others. The, the, uh, the, the, uh, the scene where he drops off his niece with, uh, with her mom uh, had a couple shots in it that were pretty noisy. But, you know, overall, I would say it, it, was, a, it was a pretty clean – it was a pretty clean image. It was uh, one, of the, one of the cleaner – red mx uh projects that i've that i've worked on so we we did have some concerns about adding grain but uh but we tested you know it was uh we, we thought that uh if anything the the grain would help to absorb some of the noise cuz yeah, as you know grain is much more even film grain is much more even than 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 video noise video noise has a tendency to crop up in certain areas whereas the film grain is much more sort of universal in the image, so it has a way of, of of masking noise in some ways with with something that's much more organic and and pleasing. And in scenes, in particular, when he, when you think he's going to buy drugs and he's getting the flip book, um, there's a hallway scene that looks almost painterly. It's very um, kind of warm colours. Can you describe yeah. what that looked like? And it really drops off to black left and right. I presume because there just was nothing there, or was that all happening in the grade? You know, a lot of that was happening in the grade. I mean, Daniel um, did a, a really amazing job lighting lighting in, in a relatively low contrast way, and, and leaving a lot of latitude in in the grade for us to to push areas down. Um, the, the image was really warm out of the can. You know, I, I would say it was it was probably like you know twenty seven hundred or 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 warmer. And we did experiment at a certain point. I think pretty pretty far into the grade, we uh, we, we we tried an entirely. We went 180 degrees the other way, and went super duper blue to see if that worked. And just ended up coming back to the to the to the warm look. Um, 
that that was there. Although, you know, surprisingly, I think the blue the blue could have could have really worked, but it was it felt it felt right for the scene to go against the the, the mood of the scene to keep it warm in this sort of like dangerous, dingy, seedy situation than than it would have been to go cold and and fearful and scared, which was sort of the the emotion, which was kind of kind of our 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 motto throughout, which was like rather than going for you know a desaturated dingy look, a lot of times we went for for something happier um, and, and sort of going against the, the 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 tone of the scene i've got to say in those scenes when she's uh just running out, you think that she's going to run away um, because she's uncomfortable as he's gone inside. The quality of the <clears throat> light on her cheeks it seems to be just so soft and so her her cheeks become so powder like in there, um, which obviously is helped enormously by the actress's natural age and and beauty. But it's a it is a very beautiful light. But you've just managed to keep her eyes kind of. We can see what's going on, even though she's wearing a hat. I would have thought again, someone would have said, "Don't get her to wear a hat at night in a dark hall. Hmm. If you have any chance of seeing anything, were you having to like power window in to get in that, or was it just so uh, meticulously done on set that it was working?" There, there were some power windows for sure. There, there were some uh, some mats, and I, I mean that's the case for everywhere. You know, there, there, there's a power window on, on everybody's face, but not really a, a sort of a uh, nine nine one one sort of a power window. Like we have nothing if if we don't do it, but just to to make it pop a little. And and something I did probably more than I would have done normally is is sharpen, uh, particularly the eyes. Right. Uh, Daniel does this wonderful thing where he he uses uh, a, a, an eye light, a, a large light that that has this amazing reflection in the eyes, and uh, the sharpening really helped to bring that out. And then the film transfer had a way of of intensifying uh, those those super bright highlights that were already in the eyes. So there was this real symbiotic relationship between the the eye light that Daniel had in the shoot, the sharpening that was done. In, in the digital and then the film transfer that, that, that brought it out. It, uh, it, it, the, the three parts of that really took it to a, a different level that I, I hadn't seen before. Yeah. Actually, just before we leave that scene, if I, if I can ask, uh, Daniel, they, that reflection in the eye, like those hits in the eyes. Um, I mean, how much is it a matter of just seeing if we can get a hit in the eyes and how much are you very conscious? I want it, that hit bottom left or top right, because it's going to make it look more pensive or more, I mean, you want to highlight in the eyes to bring them out, but its position in the eyes, were you able to kind of craft that or is this like uh, over-intellectualizing the process? No, not at all. I think, you know, that's the bread and butter is, is eye lights and getting the fill ratio, I think, are the two hardest things in, in narrative cinematography to get right. And you really have to study it and understand it because you can't kind of muck around on set and positioning them. You have to, you have to get it and you have to know what you're looking for. So, um, certainly I like to use a big, usually a big China bowl skirted down a little bit with a, with a very low wattage bulb. So I don't have to dim it down too much because if you, if you have a tungsteny dimmed down eye light, it can start to get a bit murky and muddy. But I think we, in that scene, we were dollying within this small corridor, and I think we had, a, in fact, we had a very small china bowl in this case, rigged just above the lens, basically touching the lens, and it was a forty a forty watt bulb inside, um, not dimmed down at all, and it just just below her cap, 
And I was worried when, when we shot it that it looked a bit kind of glam, um, overly glam. But Jerome did a great job of just sort of uh, pinpointing it. And it, it, it definitely worked in the end for that scene. Let me just now talk about the decision to go back to film. So we've established where we are. You've uh, got this terrific-looking uh, piece of digital negative. You're going to go now into some actual neg and then uh, reprocess that again. I presume, you know, you've covered this in a, in a lot, but just quickly, what was the logic on why you wanted to go back to film? <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a really good question. Um, you know... Uh, Everything that Daniel said about anamorphic cinematography and uh, and that this was this was cinema, it just it it made sense for that. And we, we the three of us had all these conversations about about film and how great it would have been to shoot film. And it, it's something that's been on my mind for a while, having worked on a number of projects where where we've added grain. Uh, and it, I've never been happy with with that process. I've never seen anything that that looks truly authentically filmic grain wise from 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 adding film grain and uh i just thought it it wouldn't hurt to to experiment and uh sean and daniel were so psyched about trying it out uh and willing to experiment that we 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 ran some tests and we uh we picked uh three film stocks uh vision three stocks 50 250 and 500 asa stocks and even tried some bleach bypass on about a minute of footage. I, I put together uh, a reel that was uh, uh, basically uh, like almost every other shot from the film uh, down to a minute. And we transferred those off and scanned them back and, uh, and were really happy with what we saw. Um, if we'd had a little bit more time and, and more money, we would have experimented more with, uh, with the bleach bypass. But... Uh, because certain shots worked really well with a bleach bypass, but it would have taken more back and forth with the lab to get that right. But uh, in the end, we picked the 250 because it was uh, it, it was a right level of grain, and it really it, it really it added so much to the film um, in terms of both the, the the color and the grain that uh, it, it it made sense. So, Jerome, can I ask you three stupid questions that I, somebody listening to this may want to ask, but if, like me, they would do so, you'd think them an idiot. But let me just ask you three really dumb-ass questions, right? Sure, yeah. Can you really tell the difference between adding grain by getting it through film and adding grain by adding it electronically? I, I think you can. Uh, and uh, I think you certainly can. <laughs> um, you, Mike Seymour, and, and us certainly can. And, and I think unconsciously, even if somebody's not fully educated uh, and experienced with, with the medium, that you can feel the difference. And I I mean, I challenge anybody to point to uh, an example of that being done really, really well. And I, I, and I don't think it's from, from lack of, of, of skill and talent. I think there's, there's something that happens with film that, uh, that, that really is different than, than adding grain. Even when you're doing something that I've done many times, which is compositing actual film grain on the image, there's something about the image being married to the grain and the texture of the film and all of the secondary artifacts that, that, that go with that, that really is, is different from adding a layer of, of, of grain on top of the image. Okay, dumb question number two. You're an experienced colorist. You've had uh, years in the business. The industry's had years coming up with electronic bleach bypass. Why the heck wouldn't you do that in post when you've got control over it? Do you really think you can't match electronically what 
bleach bypass is doing in the lab? You know, again, I, I think it's 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 the same same situation. I mean, I think you can get you can get things that are very close and uh, on a single shot or maybe even on a single scene could work, but uh, it it just doesn't look the same to me. I mean, the, the bleach bypass that you see on something like Apocalypse Now uh, or or Seven are are to me a completely different experience than the sort of pseudo digital bleep, bleach bypasses that you see in in, in films uh, in, in the mid two thousands. Say whether there was there was a lot of uh, digital work that way. They they just look entirely different to me. I mean, well, it, yeah. it's sort of like saccharin versus sugar. <laughs> I mean, they you know it, it's a it's a the sweetness is is it's they're both sweet, but. They one has an aftertaste, and the other, the other doesn't, and the other sort of blends organically with the, with the with the image. I mean, call me old fashioned, but that that's that's how I see it. Okay. If I could speak to that as well, sure. Mike. Real, I mean, what Jerome, Jerome says is is entirely true for me anyway. That you know, look at a film like Seven, where they actually did an ENR process on the negative, and you know used the Vericon and did all these crazy things and then maybe look at the best exponents of doing a digital bleach bypass which I would consider Tom Stern and Clint Eastwood the work they do is 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 phenomenal in the DI but for me there's still no comparison you look at Seven for instance and you watch um, one of one of uh, Tom Stern's later films there's there's no comparison and it's it's sort of how do you quantify magic you know, and you, you can't. And we've been sold a lot of hype about digital cameras, et cetera, et cetera. And there are a lot of, there's a lot of vested interest and hidden agendas and everything but art and aesthetics that go into choice of, of digital cameras. But, you know, until I see something that looks better <laughs> with my own eyes, I'm not going to buy into any of it. Okay, and dumb question number three, and not that I disagree with you on any of this, right, but it's the questions that I think are just hanging in the air that need to be asked. You guys uh, had money to burn? Surely this would have cost a fortune. You're in an independent film. Why go to the expense? Is it? <laughs> well, because we, we thought it, it really mattered. I mean, in fact, at, at a certain point, Daniel and I uh, gave up our, our meager fees to, to, to do this film process. And in the end, Sean, to his credit, compensated us Anyway, but we, we, we were willing to go all out because, I mean, they had gone all out with the anamorphic lens choice. The, the cinematography in the film was, was beautiful, and it just made sense to go, to go all the way with it. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, it, 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 I think there's, there's a real difference. And I, I would love to show a sort of a side-by-side -side of the film before and after the, the, the film grain, um, the, the, the film transfer. Uh, and I think you, you could see for yourself that it, it really it, it breathed a new life into the film, and it, it it really guided our choices. I mean, it it really narrowed our choices in many ways because it, it's not, you know, as you know, film is 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 much more limited in in, in many ways. But on a creative level, that's that's often a, a very good thing. So now, I, I mean, obviously, I sort of knew what you were going to say there, but if I could direct you, as I understand it the actual cost of doing this wasn't as much as someone might think it is. I mean, you were working with Metropolis Post, I think, but that, that last Oxbury 6400 stage wasn't, you know, $50,000, was it? 
No, I mean, we're talking about 20 minutes of film here. So, I mean, all told, it was around $5,000 for, uh, for, the, the, for the film stock, the, the transfer, and the, and the scan. The appreciation of this is probably best not judged by a YouTube clip or a, um, a webinar or anything else because the things that you're talking about are really a direct um, effort to make this play better in a cinematic environment because this is mm-hmm. really – this is really size dependent, isn't it? To a certain point, it, it really it is. Yeah, it really is, and it, it's best appreciated in the in the two K DCP that uh, that's out there. That's that's playing with the the, the Academy Awards shorts in, in theaters, and and you know, fortunately played in some festivals. Um, if it wasn't the the ten eighty ProRes, but it, it's true. I mean, you you really need a, a bigger screen experience to to fully appreciate it. Although, having said that, Jerome, the you know that the film is on available on iTunes. Uh, I downloaded the, the the HD version, and it it still holds up. You definitely get, you definitely see it, and it makes a difference. Uh, it has a it has a quality to it, even on a on a computer screen. I guess what I'm saying is that it was still clearly that this film was aimed at a cinematic experience, because a lot of these things are going to get most of their benefit from that cinematic experience. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I, but I'm I'm a strong believer in. When one makes a film, you should aim for, you should be thinking this is going to get into theaters. You know, the reality is that, especially with a short film, the, the chances aren't that high. But one should always aim and, and shoot for the stars in terms of having an audience watch it in a, in a darkened theater. And, and that should be the goal. So, I, you know, from a personal perspective, I'm always thinking about that. Would you do this route again? Do you, if you had another film that, and you know, not that money's no object, but you weren't being dictated to by the budget per se, do you feel like you would want to go down a shooting film route, or you're happy with going down a shooting digitally route and then doing a film transfer, or you don't think it would just depend on the project, I guess? But well, I mean, I I, I was just talking to Jerome today. I'm going to do another project in in Los Angeles, another short at the end of the month, and and we'd even started talking about maybe going one further and, and still shooting digitally, but doing a, a bleach bypass ENR, which would obviously require a lot more testing and, and trying to get the, the level of contrast in the image correct before we did that. So, no, I'm, I'm sort of in love with this process, actually, and I would definitely try it again. But it needs to be the right project that's independent that producers aren't going to freak out over etc because it's you know a lot of people are going to say well why the hell are you doing this and i guess from a production point of view now moving away from the aesthetics there are huge advantages of shooting digitally on set not least of which is you're not so worried about shooting ratio and stuff i mean stock does literally cost a fortune when you're running through it we we wanted to shoot film but the economics just you know, this film cost there thereabouts about $40,000 all in, which is not a lot of money for a six-day shoot. So we were very, we had, we were very constrained financially. And it, I think it would have been irresponsible to shoot film, one, from the financial perspective. And also, we had a nine-year-old girl as an actress. And, you know, she turned out to be amazing and kind of nailed it on the first take almost every time. But we didn't know that in advance. So I think though financially and also the young actress led us into shooting with the red instead of trying to shoot film. But um, it's definitely an interesting hybrid way of kind of not necessarily getting the best of both worlds, but just 
melding the two of them together for for one's own benefit. Hmm. Well, look, it's been great talking to you, and I, I really, uh, really have enjoyed the film as well as uh, obviously our conversation. It's a great film. It's very engaging. I was a bit, I was a bit concerned in the opening scene that I was going to be tortured, and uh, and I was delighted. <laughs> so I'd recommend yeah. it to anyone. Oh, thank you, Mike. Thanks. Thanks so much for taking time to talk to us. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Well, thanks, guys. Thanks for taking the time. That was. That was interesting. It was interesting. I mean, I, I, I'm glad that they went to those lengths to, uh, to go with that process and explore it and keep that, you know, and and give it a whirl. I mean, I'm kind of, of the mindset that, that come on, can't you just like you said, can't you just, you know, just. <laughs> put a filter on or just you know do the bleach pass bypass thing in post i really just, like you know, these run guys. a bit of a grain filter i really like these guys but um yeah i thought i just had to ask the blunt question like can you really tell but yes you heard they absolutely adamant they can um and you know who am i to argue they won the bloody oscar <laughs> yeah yeah exactly you know like exactly. uh plus three for possibly saving some money minus a million for not winning the oscar yeah yeah good on them if that's what it takes, uh, and you know what, uh, the director really likes it, the DOP really likes it, uh, the whole team was behind it, I think, you know, more power to them. I have no problem with people experimenting and doing that kind of stuff. I think it's great. I think it's really, really great. But more than that, it's actually a good film. I mean, it's uh, good performances, good acting. Yeah. Not, not normally the kind of film that I would uh, see, as I said, the first uh, 30 seconds. I was like, oh, I'm not going to like this, but I did. Hey, you found a really cool piece of kit during the week changing gear you found uh new gyros we like gyros where'd you find yeah this? well kenyan kenyan make the normal kind of you know those normal kind of like almost like a hand grenade style gyro that you can bolt on lots of things and actually there's some very cool when you go onto their website um there's a whole bunch of links in their media gallery of people using just the regular not this this actual thing i'm going to talk about but just using their regular kenyan gyros and bolting them to, like, say, um, uh, sort of flying fox rigs, and just have the power of one or two of these gyros put on something. The f- just physics, pure physics. I love, I love gyros. I love gyroscopes. I love all this stuff. Just interesting to see the before and after of bolt. Like, particularly, there's a couple of videos. I'll put one a link to the particular one I'm talking about. They just bolted a couple of these to a um, a guy strung up a like a flying fox rig in his backyard. This was a professional rig, and he had two gyros on it, and the before and after, like here's the gyro off and then put it on and like the chalk and cheese. It's not, this is not some sort of servo stabilized thing. This is just physically spinning, just mass, small amounts of reasonably heavy metal spinning at speed. And what it was able to do to just bolt down the entire, just stabilize this entire framework of this, uh, um, uh, flying Fox rig. And it was made an incredible difference to the stability in high wind, uh, of of this rig. So, what this is is their new version. It's called the X series. Now, normally, if you're going to say put on say like a continental camera mount, continental chopper rig, you'll have one or two of these things, and generally put them on different axes. They'll stabilize in one particular axis. And sometimes, if you're trying to handhold the thing, they're reasonably bulky. They're quite heavy and they're quite noisy, and they all every single one needs to be powered separately. Um, you might bolt one to a stills camera and it'll sort of stabilize you in one particular axis. Uh, now, I'm, I'm 
partly just for a change, kind of speaking out my ass because, you know, physics and gyros and, and, and gyroscopic precession and all the, all the other parts of physics are not exactly my forte, but, um, you know, I've used enough of them to kind of understand what they vaguely do. But um, to do... What they've done is combined two axes in one, in one pod, one self... in, in one easier to power and quite small and quite compact um, housing managed to do two axes um, horizontally in, into the one into the one kind of housing I suppose so they built it's actually I guess they kind of work against each other ordinarily if you've got one particular axis running and you and you pan one direction it'll spin off you know it'll it'll throw you off in a completely different direction but if you have two working together and they're kind of horizontally kind of opposed they kind of work together to really give you stability in a lot of ac- in a lot of directions so this I guess is just combining two axes in one sort of like I guess a big x and let you sort of put it under under a handle, put it under a camera, put it under a shoulder rig even, and uh, still put the camera on your shoulder, but um, or even in your hand. There's a couple of fantastic uh, pics in the, in the show notes of just some really interesting rigs for, be it just any X cams or DSLRs, or, or they have three or four different sizes. You can definitely, easy enough to bolt on the bottom of an Epic or even something larger. I was going to say, this is the thing that when I first saw this, I thought, oh, it's another gyro. And the one I used last was about the size of a... Bit bigger than a shoebox, um, you know. It was like quite a large thing. This the Tyler mini gyro, whatever. It yeah, it's great. Don't get yeah. me wrong. Yeah. Freaking awesome. But this yeah. thing, I had no idea until I saw uh, some of the footage in action. Someone was holding in the palm of their hand the gyro on top of which was a 5D Mark III, and I was like, "Hang yeah. on a second, I got my scale wrong by a factor of about two or three. This thing's like, yeah, it's not quite not, compact. Not that cheap. I mean, let's face it. It's it's not saying it's bad value for money, but I mean, a gyro, any gyro is expensive. Yeah, we're talking two, just four to six thousand dollars, depending on the sizes you go with. And and obviously, it's better to have a larger gyro than you think you maybe need. It's only going to stabilize you more. There'll be a payoff where it'll just like it'll fight you too much. And uh, but generally, if you're wanting to just stick them out at the, not do a lot of major operating and panning and tilting, if you just want to just uh, generally point it out the front of something or on a car or um, out the side of a chopper and you're just wanting it to stabilize and smooth things out rather than be a complete full-on, you know, West Cam, these things work perfectly and they're very portable, very small, and they're really cheap. You know, that's the thing. This is not a a three-hour bump in or with FAA approval to bolt this thing to a particular chopper that has the right hard mounts and, you know, all the rest of the stuff and specialised operators and having to fly in an entire team with a full-on proprietary um, built rig. This is something you can put in a Pelican case, bolt it on and just whack it wherever you like and, and, and have a bit more freedom and get in and get out, shoot something really quick and um, not have to have a complete system you know like a lot of the 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 the, you know stabilized balls you have the the camera is 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 another whole you're renting an entire whole camera system and you're renting on flying in two or three technicians from interstate or another country so this is you know there's horses for courses but this is definitely great for, for a lot of stuff and um, and this is a really interesting solution that will give you a lot more stability um, in in a really compact single powered 
uh, piece of kit. So it's the Kenyan Gyro X series. Again, there's some links in the show notes. Click through, as you say, some of their videos of what they've done before and after. Um, and you really get the idea of the power of it's really kind of opened my eyes to these things. I've used them in the past, and as I say, it's kind of quirky as to where you mount them and how they angle. And you know, you know, where do you put one pointing up and where do you point one pointing left and right and this is really just a sort of taken a lot of the guesswork out of it and uh that's that's very cool now i want the very tempting now i want the <laughs> matchbox size one for my gopro <laughs> yeah well i mean I hey someone should make something i guess the problem gyro. is that you'd still the problem is you, they still need to i guess it's orders of orders of magnitude you still need to have some mass to them and still need to have some quite high RPMs and yep. still need to, you know, have some weight to it. But I guess if you're stabilizing a much smaller camera, then you can get away with something smaller. But I'm sure there is opportunities for someone to make something really small. But I guess it's still going to have to have some weight to it because that's how this shit works. So at the top of the show, I said there was a bit of kit that was coming out that was something that I saw years ago at NAB. Yes. I am referring to uh, our friends uh, with the micro remote, remote control, yes, follow focus micro. from Red yes. Rock. Yeah, it's starting to come out, starting to ship. Not the iPhone controller that we've loved and seen and wanted and coveted. For You can blame Apple for all the delays with that. But uh, I'm kind of in, in remiss a little bit because when I was last in LA in October or November, I, I met up um, with Brian Valente from Red Rock and he gave me a demo and played with a proper you know, release version of the micro remote, the wireless, uh, the, his wireless follow focus control and i was just really impressed with it and it's now you can now start to, to purchase this stuff and it's out there and ready to go so i just thought it was worth plugging and the all those little accessories like the little thumb wheel things you really have to have a play with these things to understand how that they're really good the thumb wheel thing and the, the he's making his own motors now the motor i thought was really great very talky very compact and easy to get in the right spot no i was i saw no slop in any of the system the 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 wireless transmitter the hand unit is beautifully done it's got 300 feet range you can rig it up wide or wireless so if you do have some kind of interference you can just go hard wired and you're okay it does all the things like larger more expensive units will do in terms of the auto setup where it'll go from stop to stop on your lenses and just automatically you know you can have different um marked up discs for your hand controller and it will go from stop to stop and every time you set up that particular lens you know your your markup disc will 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 line up um and you can work with lenses that don't have hard stops and you can go in there and program each each stop for each lens you can expand the um the range you know so you can have a a lens that doesn't have much throw and give it a much larger throw um yeah you can reverse the direction of the motor and the yeah the little thumb wheel thing i thought that would be a little bit quirky but man that is a very intuitive thing that works really well I and mean, even just adding the thumb wheel itself is like about 150 bucks this is really quite affordable just the wireless bundle which is the transmitter and the receiver and motor and cables is about two three two thousand three hundred bucks and the handheld bundle, which is more the motor and the thumb wheel and the the, the brain, the which you can then use for the receiver, is about fourteen hundred bucks, fifteen hundred dollars. So this is com- by com- 
comparison to you know the next best thing, the next the next higher up stuff, it is um, fractions of what the next you know of what comparable systems are. So, and it is beautifully made. There doesn't be any compromises in the way this stuff works. It's built like a Brit shit house, and that transmitter will will. Um, uh, works beautifully and really feels nice in in the hand. You in no way feel like you're you know playing with a toy. Uh, so I was really impressed and worth worth the wait. So I felt um, it was definitely worth worth mentioning that this stuff's out there now. And it's kind of had this sort of delayed start. So it kind of felt like is it actually out? Do we care? You know. But I think it's you know definitely something that's worth worth having another look at. The iPhone remote part of things will is still planned is still coming they are still working on it a lot of the time it is uh, it hasn't been abandoned it's definitely uh, you know kind of getting fucked up by the whole apple the apple system but uh it, it is still it is still coming i guess well we'll ask brian when we see him in a month see if you hadn't used it i'd be i'd be less prone to talk about it because i mm. i definitely had filed mm. it under you know must have failed somewhere and quietly gone exactly away. and i'm not mentioning it because i've got a free one next to me i don't i really want to get one of these but uh i had a chance to play with one for a couple of days and i was really impressed particularly with the build quality i was just this blown away this is not you know little dicky connectors this is all beautifully done cabling all stress um all all got sort of stress relief uh, boots on all the cables all full limo connectors there's no kind of like cheap kind of russian limo knockoffs or anything going on here this is all it's really really well done and it's done it's you know when you're talking about remote focus this stuff should either work or just don't even sell it you know if you if you're gonna don't don't make some this is not the kind of stuff that you should um you know do a an all all, a kind of good you know version you really need to make this stuff uh good or just go home so, and I think they've 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 really they've really done a great job here. So yeah, no, I mean, it, it really makes a huge difference that you've actually used it. Because mm, mm, mm. you, you just can't tell unless you've you know, does it feel no. clunky? Does it feel plastic? Does it feel like it's yeah? You know, is there broke? slop in the yeah, motors? Exactly. You know, because the mo- the whole thing with the motors is, I think they were originally were going to working on some motors, but in the meantime they were going to just bring out the system and then you can use your own motors. But that was kind of counterproductive because. Most of the motors out there, ninety percent of them, are just—I mean, they're they're outstanding, but they are thousands and thousands just for a, for a motor. So that mm. was always going to be a bit of a barrier to entry. There's no good making one half of it really affordable if you know the only way you can use it is to spend another two or three grand. So they've spent the time, and this from from people who have tried and failed, or tried and nearly gone out of business, or tried and eventually succeeded. All of the stopping point and all of the the pain and the anguish has been in those motors. Getting something small, repeatable, with no slop that has a lot of torque uh, is a real is a is a real um, ball breaker. That's the tough bit. So they've 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 battled that and come out winning. To to do all this bundle that all together for a couple of grand, that's fantastic. If you use Steadicam a lot, a lot of people just use Steadicam and don't even bother with focus. They'll just say, oh, we'll just set and forget or we'll go really wide. But this at least will let you sort of not have to compromise on your Steadicam shots because, uh, you know, you can, there's no sort of less of an excuse now to just do set and forget focus on a Steadicam. Though I would really like to have that iPhone 
you know. Uh, yeah, yeah it, 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 it would be nice. But, it, you know, I think, I mean, it was terrific. It was a, it was a clever thing and it was a, not a gimmick. It was, it was a clever impl- implementation of the whole iPhone, you know, functionality. But at the end of the day, you're doing a very physical, um, intuitive kind of almost like a sixth sense sort of an operation and you really want the simplicity of a wheel and a mark and it's the re- you want all of the rest of that stuff to fade away the technology involved in iphone and displays and all that stuff is terrific but you know i don't think we should get caught up too much in the fact that that's a bit of a lost piece of technology that we're never going to have because at the end of the day this is what you want you want a wheel and a a place to mark put your marks and you just want it to fit in your hand beautifully and comfortably and feel like you've got your hand on the lens and just sort of to kind of technology that gets out of your way and i suppose even if the iphone thing was here there'll always be that issue of regardless of how fantastic red rock make the rest of the stuff you know there might be some issues with the apple side of things or an up you turn up and then all of a sudden the app won't run because it needs an update because of apple's pushed some out some sort of soft hardware change or you know what i mean there'll always be just trying to i guess this is the having that be that little bit simpler it's quite okay for this kind of stuff to be not complicated you know and that they make the cine tape as well. Essentially, the, the the Red Rock version of a cine tape, you know, the sonar sonar rangefinder, and give you a nice display, and give you that extra kind of third, fourth, second guess, third guess, fourth guess kind of estimation of not just what you're thinking, but also a little sonar display for not very much money on top of your camera, also telling you, um, telling you, you know, giving you an, another bit of information to feed into your. You know, your own personal guesstimate. So, anyway, I thought it's definitely worth mentioning again that this stuff's now out there and, and, and shipping and uh, really affordable and beautifully made. So, thank you, Brian, for, for bringing this to bringing this to to market. So, uh, another thing you've been very busy this week, Jess, uh, is the Firefly uh, digital sensor cleaner. This is a sensor cleaner that actually, in addition to what a sensor cleaner would normally do, which is looking to remove electrostatic particles or bits of stuff by either wiping it away or blowing it away. This is actually trying to do it uh, in part by actually having its own electrostatically ionized air. So it's Mm. a a little ionizer uh, as much as it is an airstream. Now, the worst thing in the world you can possibly do is use that can air because it has a propellant in it which, you know, wrecks your sensor after a while. Um, and a lot of people don't clean their sensors. I think they just get them taken to Canon and, or places like that and get them done. Yeah. But if, you, if you're not somewhere where you can easily take uh, your camera to get service or you're on uh, location, certainly there's no... Um, there's just nothing worse than getting rushes back that have marks all over them. Yeah, and a lot of dust. And it's harder to take it off a moving image. You know, it's okay if it's a bit of a, on a still shot, you've got a bit of dust, great. Well, you just, you know, get the little clone brush and boom, it's gone. But on a moving image with foreground and background images, you know, and stuff on, on the fly, it's all the more painful to try and remove. So, I mean, a lot of dust on sensors is just stuff that sits there because it's statically charged. And that's why a lot of, um, you know, simple domestic or you know um home you know non-pro camera systems have that very fine ultrasonic vibrating stuff will get rid of a lot of dust it's not a mark it's not a splash of coffee it's not anything on the sensor other than just a a little piece of dust which happens to be attracted to the glass 
So what this is is essentially a little add-on that goes on to the regular kind of those little Giotto uh, little little rocket bulbs, just a little little blower bulb, and it uh, you put a nine volt battery in it, and you press a button, and it does about fifteen seconds or so of of uh, anti-static charge to the air passing through it, and it also has a very fine microfilter, physical uh, particulate filter as well on it. So it's only about one hundred thirty bucks, and I think it may even be. I think there's a cheaper version if you already have one of those little Giotto rocket bulb things as well, and you want to add it to your own. So it's interesting. I mean, I've never really had much of an issue with sensor dust for years. I've carried around one of those little sensor picker plucker things with a little suction cap thing. And I kind of dread the fact, I dread the moment when I might actually have to use it in the field. And, oh, my God, I've got dust on my sensor and I might actually have to physically touch the thing in the field. This, theoretically, is you know, put it on 15 seconds and blow the crap out of the... Uh, out of your sensor and it will um, get rid of it will should I've got a I've got a brush that I've wiped the sensor with I also have a kit for doing a wet clean though I've not done that I must admit because I my Canon gets taken back to um, yeah Canon for various things and I get it cleaned there so I've cleaned it for sort of uh, dust when we've been on location but not cleaned it cleaned it uh, and I th- and I feel comfortable with that I think this is a good idea and definitely um uh, addresses depending on also I think what, what climate you're in as you know how much this is going to be um, yeah it's a huge factor but yeah seems like a good idea we're going to mm. have to wrap it up Jace I'm going to have to yeah. um, head out and uh, and we're once again running long um, just want to do some quick shout outs um, I believe there's a couple of websites you want to just to quickly flag yes okay the first one uh, is uh, shot on what and now I. There's some technical info on some projects on IMDb, yep. and you can it can be quite good. This is, I mean, it's a, it's a growing thing. It's not the IMDb be all and end all of of um, what cameras are used on what project, but it's a start. Shot on what dot com, I think is the is the link. Yep. is a technical data designed to be a technical database for um, what cameras, equipment, gear, lenses, etc., was used on on any given project. Now, and they encourage you at the moment, as it is, it is a growing database, and they encourage you if you've worked on a particular project, if you know what, what cameras and gears were used in, and involved in a particular project, they encourage you to go and update your particular projects and, and build to the database. But uh, yeah, good on them f- for launching this website, Shot on What, and you can go and find out what gear was used for what, because I'm often wondering, what the hell, this looks really interesting. I wonder what it was shot on. Well, you can also do it the other way around. You can actually, you know, what, what, for example, used Mari from the Foundry. Oh, that was used on Beautiful Creatures and it was used on, you know, uh, Skyfall or whatever it is. So you can, you know, you can look up, buy things other than the film. Like on IMDb, you tend to look up more on the film and then see what was yeah. used rather than saying, okay, who's using, for example, um, oh, I don't know, Cineform or who's using, you know, uh, whatever it is that, uh, that you want to check out. Um, yes, this is not restricted to just the cameras and lenses. It's the VFX tools and what sound system and the resolutions, the post-resolution, not just the shooting resolutions, what 3D system, all that kind of stuff. They want, they're want. they trying to slowly grow the database with as much info in all departments as possible. Well, IMDb sold out to Google, right? So Yeah, and that's becoming more of a... I mean, yeah, the database is still excellent, but it's definitely... I, I use IMDb to, all the time. ...designed to sell shit. Yeah, I, uh, the next, I, I I do like IMDb. I don't think... Yeah. No, yeah. I wouldn't want to dismiss okay. it as being ad 
least if you're on the pro are no. you on pro you must be no, on I'm not. Oh, actually. well, it's no, a I'm huge not. difference between Pro, yeah. which is about to be redesigned or about to launch the new redesign. Okay. And I'll have to have a Pro lesson from someone who's on there one day. Sort of, in fact, I, I, I think I only, enlightened. Oh, yeah, no, I only go to Pro. It's, right. I'm totally happy to pay for it because it's, uh, it's so worthwhile. I'm not taking anything away from shot on what, but I'm just saying like... How much is the Pro? Look, I don't know. It's just uh, the price of doing business, I reckon. I just, yeah. uh, oh, um, I couldn't... Uh, I mean, we do a lot of interviews and a lot of... Um, uh, stuff here at FX Guide, and I'm constantly referring to IMDb Pro. Okay, another one is a podcast. Ruining it for everyone is an excellent podcast. I've just started getting to my new sort of favourite podcast, uh, hosted by Christopher Harrington and Maggie McPhee, who we all know, who's also um, Tank Girl on Twitter, and uh, it's it's kind of geeky. It's it's um, they've done a bit on Mac Pros, where the fuck are the Mac Pros, uh, bravely tackled the, um, the VFX industry controversy and, yeah, and a whole bunch of other. It has a bit of a, a bit of a, a film bias. There's a bit of Mac bias. There's, I don't know, there's lots of things. There's, and they have a, a bit of a roster of guests as well coming in and out depending on what their uh, subject du jour is. So ruining it for everyone. Links to the show notes. And also, obviously, I'm sure you can Google it and uh, find it on iTunes. But yeah, great. In-depth. And it's one of those ones that feels... Doesn't, that A long podcast that doesn't feel long, which is fantastic. Something I could probably learn a thing or two uh, and the next one another one is a blog um, shout out to Glenn Ryan who's Paul Vovolvo on Twitter and he's done a really nice uh, he's done landscape infrared stills landscapes for uh, a long time and he's now done a he has a Scarlet I think he has a Scarlet X and it has access to Epic X's and he's done a really nice time lapse uh, Vimeo piece uh, called Invisible Landscapes, and which is infrared on Epic, and uh, it's beautifully done. And it's not ep- infrared modified Epics at all. It's just unmodified bodies, just shooting with uh, the classic, you know, R72s, like classic um, infrared filtering, and doing a bit in post as well. So um, links on the sh- in the show notes to uh, it's glenryan.tumblr.com is his uh, blog so he's talking about the project and also I guess it's one of those evolving things where it will go from um, just Vimeo shorts into something long long form so yeah and he's uh, done some great work and Australian have you shot like this not I've I've tested it. I've tested a bit here and there. You really have to push things, particularly the Epic, which isn't all that sensitive. I mean, there's certainly a lot more. It's more sensitive than, I think, the 5D Mark II was and stuff like that. So some cameras are a lot more... This stuff looks bloody sensi- gorgeous. Oh, it's just... I, I love infrared work, particularly infrared landscapes, and uh, this is some, some beautiful work. I just worked out the other day. I've had a picture up on the wall here for forever. I said, oh, this stuff looks just like that picture up on the wall, and I looked over, and it's... It's Glenn's picture, so it's terrific. Beautiful work and worth checking out and following on Twitter. So he's doing stills and gallery kind of limited edition stuff, but is he yes. also doing moving clips? Yes, this is a, there's a, this, this Invisible Landscapes is a... Um, uh, actually, Cast Country is the, is the, name of the name of the Vimeo, so I think K-A-R-S-T, 
country. If you, it's actually a Vimeo staff pick. So if you Google, if you look for that on, search for that on Vimeo, you'll you'll find it, and then obviously link onto him onto his onto his blog and onto Twitter, etc. So there is, uh, yeah, cast K A R S T country is uh, the, probably the best search terms for Vimeo to to find the piece. But yes, he's also a beautiful landscape infrared landscape photographer and has done some and well and, and sells his work of course. He can do, do beautiful uh, linen printed meter long um panoramics shot in infrared as, as as well as starting to now get into the moving picture side of things on the infrared which is not easy. But uh, yeah, some beautiful stuff. Yeah, I Thanks, I didn't know you could do that on the Epic like that. Well, the Epic is a bit more uh, sensitive to infrared, which is good and bad, and which leads me to uh, our last my last little little um, shout out, which is for Ryan E. Walters, who is a friend to the show, and has, he's been mentioned here and there before with his excellent work talking about light meters. Um, He's done. I'm sure he's had help, but uh, forgive me if he's if he's had a lot of help and hasn't. I haven't credited his uh, his colleagues, but he's done a series of uh, comparison tests from RAW of Alexa, Blackmagic, and Epic, comparing the red footage, the 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 RAW footage between those three cameras, looking at low light, how they all handle underexposure and overexposure, highlights and um, to my earlier point, infrared, seeing how which one's more sensitive and how they all react to different levels of neutral density um, and how they looking at different fabrics and how each black, when it's corrected back, how much the correction is. So it's quite quite in-depth. And so Some Like It Raw is the series. There's part one, there's a three-part, at this point, three-part uh, Vimeo series as well as accompanying blogs, uh, accompanying uh, blog info on, on his on his blog, which is ryanewalters.com slash blog, I think. And uh, if you just Google Ryan E. Walters cinematographer, you'll, you'll find him and find and you find the links to the Vimeo. The, just going to Vimeo alone isn't right. You have to go to the blog where there's like the backstory of the tests and discussions on it. So very interesting to see these, these three raw cameras compared. And because obviously part of the guy said, obviously, thank you. They, um, not for the first time, they um part of the joy for me of of raw is is you know is how much you get in, in how much you can then see into the blacks or the highlights and how much safety net you've got and so i guess it's comparing raw raw with raw and and how raw is raw and and how much of a benefit it is um uh, depending on which camera you're testing so thanks Ryan for going to the trouble it's quite uh, intense well, now we really are over time. We really, really, really are. <laughs> Must go. Okay. Uh, I literally need to be uh, somewhere else. But unfortunately, uh, yes. that's you know too often the case. Hey, um, thanks so much for being with us this week on the show. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Jace, as always. You all. Um, obviously, I'm Mike Seymour on Twitter, and Jason is... I'm Wingrove. And, uh, Thank you. And you'll find us over at fxguide.com, where the show notes are for download. Um, thanks so much for being with us, guys. We'll catch you next week, and... Uh, don't forget about NAB coming up and uh, the Tuesday of NAB for the live show. Until next time, see you guys. Thanks for listening. Send your questions or comments to rc at fxguide.com. 
copyright 2011, FX Guide, LLC.